millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Chocolates are sweet, but they don't last long. Flowers are pretty, and then they're gone. So this Mother's Day, why not give your mum the gift that keeps on giving with Ancestry DNA? Ancestry DNA is on sale now for $99, a saving of $30. Ancestry DNA won't just tell your mum where her ancestors are from, it can also pinpoint the specific regions within those countries, connecting mum to the places where her story started. Ancestry DNA lets us look back across centuries to see where her family lived and where they moved. Combined with Ancestry's massive database of official records, this can open up fascinating migration stories. Who knows? Give your mum Ancestry DNA this Mother's Day and she might even discover living relatives. I know it's possible because it happened for me. Ancestry DNA is safe, easy to use and completely private. When your mum gets the kit, she just sends back a small saliva sample using the prepaid postal box provided. In a few weeks, she'll receive an email with the links to her results. From there, your mother has control of the data and how she uses it. There could be more to your mum's story. Piece it together with Ancestry DNA, now on sale. Terms apply. It's early morning on the 7th of December 1941 and the merchant steamer Donorail is setting out from Pearl Harbour, Hawaii, continuing its voyage which began in Suva, Fiji and is to end in Vancouver, Canada. Just hours after this ship is out to sea, the Japanese launch their surprise attack against the US Navy at Pearl Harbour and the world is at war. The Donorail flies under the flag of Panama, which, in the wake of the December 7th attack, has declared war on Japan. That means the Donorail is now a potential target. Most of those aboard, however, are from neutral countries, with the bulk of the 35 crew from Denmark and Norway. But two sailors are from Australia. Assistant steward Jack Lyons is from Sydney and he's just one month shy of his 21st birthday. But able seaman Murray Chambers, well, he's an old salt. Originally from Scotland, this 38-year-old has spent the last 13 years in Australia, working on boats for most of that time. Six feet tall, with sandy hair and brown eyes, Chambers has a tattoo of a sword on one forearm and the word Tushy inked on the other. Five of the Donorail's seven passengers are also from Australia, including Miss Edith Board of Sydney, who's sailing to Canada to get married. On the night of the 9th of December, the Donorail's blazing lights suddenly illuminate a Japanese submarine that's dead ahead on the ocean surface. Seeing it's about to be rammed, the sub dives quickly, and then it comes up 
astern of the steamer. Now, to the horror of those on board the Donnerail, the submarine fires two torpedoes. The torpedoes go wide, but the steamer's crew and passengers are in no doubt about what they have to do if they want to live. Abandon ship. And that means Murray Chambers and the other crew have to get the lifeboats ready. I'm Michael Adams, and this is Forgotten Australia Side Note. I came across mention of Murray Chambers while researching the episode Soul Survivor. Digging a little deeper, I found another amazing tale of survival at sea, though this one comes with a very strange twist. Having been missed by the torpedoes, the Donorail's crew succeeded in getting all seven passengers, an 18-month-old boy, two women and four men, into a lifeboat. With sailors also aboard to row them clear, the crew swung the lifeboat out, ready to be lowered. That's when the Japanese submarine started firing shells and the lifeboat took a direct hit, killing everyone on board instantly. Another Japanese shell exploded near Murray Chambers and he was blown down into the Donorail's well deck where everything went to black. When he regained consciousness 15 minutes later, the steamer was still under shell fire. About a hundred yards away, across bloody water filled with bodies, debris and sharks, Chambers saw another lifeboat crammed with his fellow crew members. He put on a life belt, dived into the water and swam for it. Somehow, Chambers wasn't taken by a shark and he reached the lifeboat. He and other survivors rowed away as shells continued to smash into the other side of the now sinking Donorail. After half a mile, they'd escaped the submarine. Chambers found he was one of 24 survivors on the lifeboat. While he was in one piece, many of the men were terribly injured. But none of them were going to live long, not with the lifeboat half underwater because it was riddled with so many shell and shrapnel holes. All that stopped it from sinking right then was that six of its 12 air tanks hadn't been punctured. That first night, as they sat in the cold and the dark, with only their heads and shoulders above water, six more crew members died. When dawn came, the men stripped the bodies and used the clothes and other debris to plug the holes in the lifeboat before consigning the dead men to the deep. Though they could bail the boat out and hoist a sail, the seawater had already ruined most of the survival rations aboard. For the next seven days, the survivors tried to get back to Honolulu, but they fought a losing battle against the wind. So they changed plan. They would go with the wind in the hopes of reaching Tarawa in the Gilbert Islands some 2,000 miles away. On the 10th day, disaster struck when the Donorail's captain, who was among the survivors, was washed overboard while tending the tiller. The other men threw him a lifebelt which he managed to grab onto, but then they couldn't manoeuvre the lifeboat to rescue him, so he was left behind to die alone on the sea. 
By night, the survivors huddled together for warmth, but many times they awoke in the morning to find another of their number had succumbed to wounds or exposure. Two men went mad, joining hands and walking over the side of the boat saying simply, quote, we're going down to the hospital. Murray Chambers later recalled, quote, They died one after the other. Day after day, we threw bodies overboard. Day after day, we plugged more holes in the boat with the clothes of the dead. After 28 days, there were only two men left. Murray Chambers and 52-year-old able seaman Bill Severite, who'd once been the British Navy's heavyweight champion. But this was one fight the old boxer couldn't win. Before he died, he said to Chambers, you may be down, but you're not out. Chambers had to feel he was both. Now he was on his own. All he had was a bottle of vitamin tablets and 40 tins of milk that had curdled. To keep hydrated, he collected water that had accumulated against the sails overnight. Chambers also hung up on these sails anything that glittered in order to attract flying fish. When these fish landed in the boat, he killed them and ate them raw. Somewhere around the 30th day, Chambers thought he was saved when he saw a plane, only to be chilled to the bone when he realised he was looking at a Japanese reconnaissance aircraft. Fortunately, the pilot circled and then flew away. A week later, Chambers had real reason to hope when he saw coconut palms on the horizon. Soon, the lifeboat was bearing down on a reef, but before he was wrecked, natives from the island came out to rescue him in canoes. The natives took him ashore. Of the 24 men who'd made it into the lifeboat, Murray Chambers alone had survived by enduring 38 days of hell and made it 2,000 miles to the island of Tarawa. But his troubles were just beginning. On the island, a Catholic nun greeted Chambers and gave him the bad news. Japanese soldiers had taken control of Tarawa a few weeks earlier. He was now behind enemy lines. Taken prisoner by the Japanese, Chambers was escorted to a hospital where an English doctor was still in residence. After a week's recovery and thanks to the intercession of the nun, the Japanese allowed Chambers limited freedom of movement. But they warned him he'd be shot if he left the lagoon area. Nine days went by and then suddenly the air was filled by the thunder of naval guns as American cruisers and battleships shelled the island. In the chaos that ensued, Chambers saw and took his chance. Grabbing a boat, he slipped away and, under cover of darkness, sailed for another island some 38 miles away. He stayed there for 10 days before sailing for another island where he met a kindly German who, despite officially being an enemy, gave him a better boat, a sextant and charts. Chambers set out again, this time reaching an island that was under the protection of two soldiers from New Zealand. 
The soldiers sent a message to the Fijian High Commission and they sent a motorboat for Chambers and brought him back to Suva on the 18th of March 1942. There, he joined a ship for New Zealand and by the second week of April, he was back in Sydney to tell his story, pretty much as you've just heard it, to local newspaper journalists and a reporter from United Press International. Chambers concluded his tale by saying he was going to have a bit of a holiday and then he was going to sign up for the army so that the next time he saw a Japanese soldier, it'd be in his rifle sight. His incredible story made headlines across Australia and around the world, but the problem was that some of it really was incredible in the sense that it wasn't true. Who was Murray Chambers, described only in these articles as having recently been a hotel proprietor in Brisbane? Life is full of awesome what ifs, and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Here are the basics. Murray Gourlay Chambers was born on the 14th of April 1905 in Yorkshire to Scottish parents. In 1911, the family moved to Canada before moving back to Scotland in 1914. When the Great War started, Murray's father William enlisted in the British Air Force. Meanwhile, in Australia, Robert Murray's older brother enlisted with the AIF and was killed at Gallipoli on the 28th of May 1915. Murray's dad William would survive the war but then die in France in 1920. When he left school, Murray became a merchant seaman. On the 8th of June 1928, he sailed from Southampton, England for New Zealand, befriending another passenger named Francis Arthur Roberts. They became good mates and toured New Zealand together before heading on to Australia. They lodged together at a hotel in Brisbane and in October, while his friend was sick in hospital with scarlet fever, Murray Chambers pinched three of his cheques, fraudulently signed them as Roberts and withdrew £250 from his bank accounts. Then Chambers went on the run. Alerts were issued and printed in police gazettes across Australia and as far afield as New Zealand, giving his physical description, including his sword and tushy tattoos, and noting that he was, quote, fond of drink and women. The long arm of the law caught up with Chambers on the other side of Australia in Perth, where he was arrested in December 1928 and returned to Brisbane to stand trial. When the case was heard the following February in Brisbane's Central Police Court, it made the front page of the city's Truth newspaper because, as it turned out, Chambers had a fascinating backstory. Quote, One could easily recognise in him an aristocratic son of England, for his fine bearing and tasteful clothes bespoke the creme de society of the homeland. 
Despite all advantages of costly education and association with some of the most eminent personalities of the day, Chambers, who is named as the heir to £400,000 and sole surviving male descendant of the famous Chambers family of Yorkshire, whose great riches and vast estates in England and Scotland are well known, stood prepared to take his gruel as a base criminal and audacious forger in the Brisbane court. As colourful as Truth's description was, most of it was actually true. Chambers' father, William Dunn, had before the war been a famous golf player and golf course designer. In 1897, he'd married Nina Grace Chambers and, unusually, he'd taken her surname. That was perhaps because her father was Robert Chambers and his father and uncle had established the hugely lucrative Edinburgh publishing firm W&R Chambers. So Murray Chambers' family were actually loaded, but in his statement to Brisbane police, he also made some very curious claims about his early life. For starters, he said he'd been born in 1903, but the UK Register of Births firmly puts the date as the 14th of April 1905. Chambers also claimed that prior to the war, he'd been at Osborne Naval College in England and then had been aboard the HMS Queen Elizabeth, Sir Ian Hamilton's flagship, at Gallipoli on the 25th of April 1915. Even if Chambers had been born in 1903, that would have made him just 12 years old, which was at the very, very lowest end of underage military recruits who served in World War I. His actual 1905 birthday, though, means he was just 10 when the landing at Gallipoli took place, and I can't see how it's possible that he was there. After the war, Chambers told police he joined the merchant service, all the while receiving a monthly allowance from his rich family back in Scotland. But his drinking caused a rift and he was sent to New Zealand to try to straighten himself out. Instead, he met Roberts, they enjoyed the indulgent life of bachelor tourists, mostly on the latter's money, and then Chambers ripped him off. In court, he said, quote, it was owing to drink that this happened, otherwise I should never have dreamed of doing such a thing. Asked if he was going to pay the money back, Chambers said that was his intention, but that he could not write to his people in Scotland because he didn't want them to know he was in jail. Chambers was sentenced to 12 months imprisonment with hard labour. After his release, Chambers married, had a child and in mid-1935 took over the licence of the Kumira Hotel at Southport in Queensland. Later, he took a hotel in Murrayborough, but he lost this business. Chambers again worked as a seaman, but on the 2nd of September 1939, the day before England declared war on Germany, he was back to his old tricks, writing a cheque against his empty bank account to obtain £5 in cash. In the coming weeks, he did this five more times before being caught. On trial in October in the police court, Chambers pleaded that he'd expected the cheques would be honoured because he'd expected his bank account was going to be topped up by his rich folks back in Scotland. 
The judge seemed to think there was something to this and only issued fines and an order to make restitution. So this was the Murray Chambers who alone had survived in the Donorail lifeboat for 38 days and then bravely escaped from behind Japanese lines during a hellstorm of US Navy artillery fire. But there was every reason to doubt him and his story. First of all, he couldn't keep his story straight. Quoted by Sydney's Daily Telegraph as saying, quote, After 38 days, we arrived at the Gilbert Islands, six of us out of the 24. The natives told us the Japanese were in occupation and we were removed to hospital. All, except myself, died. So, which was it? Had Chambers alone survived to reach Tarawa? Or had five of his crewmates also made it and subsequently perished? Actually, it was neither, and newspaper editors should have known better. Almost a month before Murray Chambers reached Sydney, newspapers in Australia and around the world ran an associated press report dated the 18th of March from Suva that detailed the incredible survival of eight Donorail crew members who'd sailed a lifeboat 2,000 miles to Tarawa and then come to the safety of Suva aboard a rescue motorboat. And one of these men was Murray Chambers, and he was even quoted briefly in the articles about how the unruptured air tanks had saved the lifeboat from sinking. There was no mention in this report of the Donorail having left Pearl Harbour on the 7th of December, only that it had been about 200 miles from Hawaii when it was attacked by the Japanese submarine on the night of the 9th of December. Here's an excerpt from what Siegfried Brunn, the Donorail's radio operator and a survivor in the lifeboat, later told the US Navy for its official report. Quote, 16 of us had died in the lifeboat of the original 24. Only eight of us remained. One day, a large bird flew into the boat. We killed it and ate it raw. Another time, a pole covered in barnacles and small shellfish floated by. We picked it clean and white. Brun's other details did correspond with what Chambers had said, from the lifeboat being riddled with holes that had to be plugged, to the rations being waterlogged and the survivors depending on vitamin tablets and catching flying fish. But when the survivors had reached Tarawa, the Japanese had already been and gone. Chambers did sail an open boat to a neighbouring island, doing this not alone but with two other survivors. When they got there, they found that the rest of the Donorail survivors, along with yet more castaways from another boat sunk by the Japanese, had beaten them there by taking a motorboat. From this island, Chambers and other survivors went to Suva and then he went on to New Zealand and finally to Australia. In the months that lay ahead, Murray Chambers wouldn't have his story challenged except in the April 1942 edition of Pacific Islands Monthly Magazine, which charted how the story had been exaggerated from report to report, but putting the blame on newspapers rather than the man who was making the tale taller in each telling. 
Murray Chambers didn't join the army to shoot Japanese soldiers and instead promoted himself as a merchant navy expert, taking speaking opportunities to further embellish his story. At a meeting of the Seamen's Union in Sydney in January 1943, the Sun newspaper reported, Chambers said he'd taken control of the Donorail and tried to ram the Japanese submarine and that he'd seen survivors snatched from the lifeboat by sharks. He described the madness of the men poignantly, quote, Most of the men died happy. They thought they were going to some place, not dying or stepping off the boat into eternity. Some thought they were going for a drink. In this telling, he'd been taken as a prisoner of war on Tarawa not for a couple of weeks, but for two months before escaping. In July 1943, Chambers, telling his story on ABC Radio with the transcript printed in its magazine, ABC Weekly, reverted to the version of the story in which he was one of eight survivors. The Japanese, he said, captured them but handed them over to the natives. In this telling, the US Navy shelling of Tarawa didn't happen at all. Instead, Chambers said he alone secretly escaped the island, the other Donorail crew members not accompanying him because they were neutrals and had nothing to fear from the Japanese. Now the emphasis was on his solo 500-mile open boat journey. Quote, I used to lie up in the daytime and cover the boat with leaves to hide from the Jap reconnaissance plane that was always on patrol. Then I would slip out at night and sail to another island. Chambers claimed, without providing details, that since returning to Australia, he'd been sunk twice more in wartime operations, but managed to survive. Bravely, Chambers wasn't put off by these experiences. Quote, Three times in all isn't bad going, but I've got to go back. I suppose I've got sea fever. Why did Murray Chambers, who'd genuinely been through an incredible ordeal, feel the need to exaggerate his story to make himself the sole survivor? And why did the newspapers print these fabrications when their very own pages less than a month earlier had told the actual story? There's no way to say for sure, but it is possible to guess at a few reasons. For starters, Murray Chambers had a demonstrated history as a con man willing to lie for his own advantage. So it's possible he thought that by turning himself into the hero who alone had beaten not just the sea, but the Japanese army, he might be rewarded with some sort of fame and fortune. From a psychological perspective, this might also have been an attempt to turn himself into a war hero, just like the brother who died at Gallipoli and the father who'd fought in France and died soon after the armistice. As for Australian newspaper editors, well, Murray Chambers' story was a good patriotic yarn, a small victory at a time when the Japanese advance across the Pacific was largely unchecked. Telling the tale, even if untrue, might inspire other young men to sign up for the fight and that in turn would be good for the war effort and the defence of Australia. 
Murray Chambers never did return to claim his family fortune in Scotland. Instead, he lived in Queensland and kept working as a seaman right up until his death in 1972. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Forgotten Australia Side Note. Be sure to check out the accompanying episode, Soul Survivor, And if you want another story about Australian maritime heroism, check out the two-part episode, Australia's Forgotten Titanic Hero, which is about my great-great-uncle. If you've enjoyed the show, please leave a rating or review at iTunes and tell a friend or two to give us a listen. To see photos, headlines and articles about this and other stories, head to ForgottenAustralia.com and the Facebook page Forgotten Oz Podcast. Forgotten Australia was written and produced by me in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. As always, thanks for listening. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.